So we're working through um, this uh, book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, third Gospel in the Bible, where Luke is writing specifically to this, uh, this person, Theophilus, who we don't know much about, and he's saying to him, Theophilus, I want you to be certain. I want you to be certain. So ask the question as we come to this particular section, what might uh, Theophilus need to be certain about? So I, th- I think one of the things that we're going to look at as we work it through this afternoon is, what kind of person is a follower of Jesus, and what does it look like? I think that is incredibly important. From Luke's day, right the way through to the present day, there have been countless ways in which the name of Jesus has been taken, has been abused, and has been uh, used to create all sorts of followings of people which are not around being a follower of Jesus, but are around being a follower of somebody else who uses the name of Jesus as a mechanism to create power over other people. That's happened countless times through the centuries, and it continues to happen even to the present day. I was reading an article from an Australian newspaper which was talking about the corrupted cult which is called the Jesus Morning Star. It was only last week that it was reported that even now, uh, a guy, this is the Jesus Morning Star, who is founded, it's founded by a South Korean called Jung Myung Suk, J-M-S, Jesus Morning Star, Jung Myung Suk, which is straight away fascinating. Uh, he's actually in prison for rape, and he has countless people recruiting to send those people over to meet him in prison, uh, to write him all sorts of uh, corrupt sexually abusive letters uh, and for him to create a following which is all about his power over other people. Is that what being a follower of Jesus looks like? Is that what the Jesus morning star is all about? How can we be sure today what it means to be a true follower of Jesus? How might we know that we are not caught up in something Uh, which is strange and abusive and wrong. Well, we we saw last week, as as Ash worked through Luke chapter 6, that he, he, he brought us to a really helpful point where one of the things that Luke is saying to, to us through his letter is that this message of Jesus, it's about something continuing yet new. It's an amazing concept. It's born out of all that has gone before, and yet this is a new turning point. You remember there were various descriptions of of how this is new, wine and wineskins and all of that kind of thing. This is a new thing. Uh, And being a follower of Jesus, in one sense, is a new thing. That's new for the Bible. In fact, many, and, and, and I guess it's the reason that Jesus actually ended up being killed, was because it was so startlingly new for the Bible. Previously, the whole of the message of the Bible has been, trust, believe, and follow the God who is not seen, the God who we don't see, the God who we dare not even use the word God, who we don't name this God, 
We describe Him in ways which avoid any sense, any possibility that we might misrepresent Him. And now we have Jesus breaking into the world and He is saying, follow Me, because through following Me, you see, you know, you experience God the Father. Anyone who has seen Me, who has seen the Father, Jesus said. That's a remarkable statement. It's heretical in one sense, and if it isn't true, well, it's not heretical in one sense. It's profoundly heretical if it isn't true. That's what Jesus is saying as He breaks into uh, this, this world and this message. He goes on in previous chapter 6, and I'll give you a quick heads up. He says, one of the outcomes of following me is that your life will change. What does it look like to have a changed life which is shaped by the gospel? Four things that jump out. Firstly, he says, you will love your enemies. Do to others as you would have them do to you, he says in verse 31 of chapter 6. And then he says, be merciful. Why? Just as your Father is merciful. In other words, he's saying, he's encouraging uh, any follower of me, it's about following the nature, the character, the person of God. It's saying, this is what God is like, therefore you be like that. Because that has to be a good thing, doesn't it? Therefore, love your enemies. Don't judge others. You hypocrite, he says at the conclusion of a little story. Somebody comes up to you. Have you had one of these uh, where you say, I've got something in my eye, you know, and it's blinking and blinking. Uh, It's a speck in my eye. And um, normally it's gone. Normally what I've done is I've scratched my eye and it still feels as if there's something there. But every now and then, Rachel kind of peel, peels my eyelids back and says, oh yeah, there it is. And she, she manages to flick it out of my eye. It's really good that she's able to do that because it means that she can see to get the little bit that's irritating my eye. Jesus uses that description and he says in in kind of judging terms, one of the problems that we have is that we judge other people and we can't even see what's wrong with us. Therefore, make sure that you get rid of the plank out of your eye so that you can see to remove the speck out of somebody else's eye. That's the picture that he's using. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I would suggest that what Jesus is saying is if we've had to remove a plank from our eye and we realize that we have removed a plank from our eye, we are far less inclined to be so bent out of shape about the little speck in our brother's eye. You see the the change that takes place by being a follower of Jesus. Then he goes on to say, good fruit comes from good trees. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. And then he says this, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That is just such a powerful statement, isn't it? What does fruit look like to us? 
What kind of, how do we describe fruit? Well, it's what blows out of our mouth. You know, that uncontrolled, we say that, that that's the reality of what's going on in here. When it suddenly just pours out, that's the fruit. Alternatively, kindness, gentleness, encouraging, compassion, love, affection, all of those things can equally pour out of our mouths. In other words, what's been changed inside results in what comes out. So that's the context in which Jesus is creating the foundation for the lives that we live. But, but what kind of person becomes a follower of Jesus? He goes on in the final bit of chapter 6 to talk about building wisely. Build on solid foundations. Real, make sure it's solid. Uh, uh, and he talks about, um, as for, for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show, that, show you what they are like. In other words, that's what the foundations become. When you, when you trust and you put your life in the hands of Jesus. The next section, which is chapter 7 that we're coming on to, Luke, in his genius writing, uses that concept of solid building and enters into this next little section of writing where he talks about what, does it, what, what kind of person becomes a follower of Jesus. The first follower of Jesus is a centurion. Uh, Jesus is in Capernaum, which is um, in the northern part uh, of Israel, right near to the, uh, not far from the, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. Uh, and there's, uh, uh, as Jesus is entering into Capernaum, uh, some men rush towards him. They say, we are servants of this centurion, and, and one of his servants is ill. Please come and heal him. We know what you're like. We've been sent so that you would heal him. And then the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they say this. Uh, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, we read in verse 4. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Isn't that great? Jesus has previously been teaching in the narrative of the way Luke allows it to follow through. Jesus has used, been using the concept of building in spiritual terms. And now the next story is about somebody who has built in physical terms. A few months ago, I was in Israel, in Capernaum, and uh, showed a picture on a midweek evening. If you want me to send you the picture, give me a shout and I can email it at the end of the service. Um, in, in Capernaum, there is the remains of the synagogue. And as you look at the synagogue, there is the main part of the synagogue, which is a brighter stone. And then right at the very bottom of the synagogue, you see a very dark stone. And what the archaeologists have recognized is that the synagogue with the brighter stone is a later synagogue. The synagogue with the older, darker stone is the very synagogue that Jesus is talking about here. It dates to the time of around Jesus, those foundations. These men have come to Jesus, and I tell you what, by the way, it is an incredible size. 
It is an amazing building. Um, it, it's solid, huge stones. The work that this centurion had, had committed to for the sake of this building of this synagogue was a significant project. It's a massive project that he had undertaken. He showed his affection. He showed his love for the nation of Israel. But more than that, he showed his love for the God of Israel by committing to the building of the synagogue. Patronage in the Roman, Roman world was not an underlying thing. It was a concept. It was the idea that I give in a way which then becomes the foundation on which I receive from you. We live like that now, don't we? Get invited out for a meal. What's our first thought is, we must invite you back. You must come. We must give back to you because you have given to us. That's our, that's our default position. And that's exactly how these religious leaders thought as well. This man has given, therefore he deserves to receive. And the centurion has got absolutely no concept of that whatsoever. Just as Jesus is arriving towards his house, he sends more messengers out and he says, don't, don't come to my house. I am not worthy to have you in my house. Patronage in the Roman world was all about social climbing. The idea that you would, you would be a, a giver to somebody greater than you was a was really good, good idea. Because that was the foundation then on which they would then give to you and you would be seen to progress in society. And the default thought in the Roman world was that if we could get somebody important to come to our house, that was a remarkably significant step in our lives. And the centurion says completely the opposite. Isn't that amazing? He says, I am not worthy to have you in my house. I'm not worthy. He knows. He's displaying. He's describing exactly the spiritual relationship that he has in the face of this holy Jesus. I, I am not worthy. You are, you are way, way too righteous to darken my doors. What's the result of that? When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And he turned to the crowd following him and he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I love this story. Because it's that little first chink, I guess, of the door beginning to open that the message of Jesus might be received by those outside of those who he came to first. Who is this? He's a Roman centurion. He's somebody outside of the nation of Israel. And yet he has received the blessing of God in Jesus. It's this that gives us hope today. It's why we're here today outside of the nation of Israel. The floodgates of the 
grace and the mercy of God being poured out to the whole of the world is beginning to be seen in these little instances of the life of Jesus with the centurion and various others. And he is granted exactly that which he desired just by Jesus saying, and his servant is healed. So the first thing that we see is the one who seems to be in the eyes of the Jewish community. He deserves this. He says, I don't deserve this. And he's the one who receives. That's an important principle. The one who recognizes that I don't deserve is the one who actually receives the very blessing from God. That is one of those foundational concepts in our faith in this Jesus understanding that His goodness to us is not because we deserve it, but because He is kind and merciful and gracious and forgiving to those who don't deserve it, and yet at the same time willing to give to those who ask and to believe. Why did the centurion receive that which he asked for? Because he built the synagogue? No. Because he had faith in Jesus. The one who seemed to have everything, yet knew he had nothing, receives the blessing from Jesus. The next one, I mean really you couldn't get to a a more extreme opposite. Soon after, Jesus went to a town called Nain, And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Nothing could be more distant from the location of the centurion and the widow of Nain. Culturally, socially, monetarily, in terms of her relationship with the power of the empire, Nothing could be more distant. One who looks as if he has everything, realizes and recognizes and assents to the fact that he is unworthy and he receives. The one here who knows she has nothing. She has more than nothing, actually, in cultural terms. We, we don't live according to the Bible if we were living in Bible times, we don't live in a world of social security. Uh, We live in a world where those of our family become the providers primarily for others. One of the great things that Jesus railed against was the way in which those who were vulnerable, uh, the widows, were being abused. How was it that they were abused? According to various writings that we see, one of the mechanisms by which they were abused was the argument which says, if God has not granted you that blessing of the continuation of security, then it must be because He's judging you, and therefore we will continue to judge you. And here's this woman who, is, who has lost her husband and has now lost that one trace of hope, she knows she is vulnerable. She knows she has nothing. 
What amazing words. What is God like? When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. That is just, that is beautiful, isn't it? If we just stop for a minute and, and just think. For all of our bravado guys, in those very dark moments, in our times when we feel incredibly vulnerable, incredibly alone, when all of those kind of barriers and veneers and pretenses are gone, don't we want to know that the heart of God goes out to us in our vulnerability? Can't we all in here say, in those moments of profound darkness, profound loss, when we really look into the whites of the eyes of our very tentative grip on existence in this world, and how fragile it is between life and flourishing and hopelessness, when we look into that and we see I desperately want to know that the heart of God is towards me. don't know whether you saw it. Uh, Louis Theroux, who I think is one of the best uh, documentary uh, producers, or uh, the, way he, the way he conducts various documentaries over the years has been just spectacular in my view. Uh, he did a, a really moving documentary a few weeks ago on alcoholism. And there was a young guy there, I think his name was Joe, uh, and he was just—he was really in the grip of alcohol, uh, and he'd, he'd, he'd managed to—he'd managed to be clean for around about 18 months, and then just like that, it just all fell apart. Just one day, fell apart again. He's back in hospital, in A and E, in just a terrible state. I, I look—I I looked at that lad, and maybe it's because he was a similar age to my boys, and I just. I just thought, wow, we are just so unaware of the knife edge that we walk along in this life uh, of being secure and then being insecure. We are all so, so vulnerable. Some of us feel it more, some of us don't feel it, but there's the reality. I love the fact that the message of the gospel is for those who recognize and know their vulnerability and look to Jesus. That's great news. Because in the middle of hopelessness, there is hope. That is great news. And at that moment, Jesus reached out and brings him back to life. Three people are involved in this little cameo of who is a follower of Jesus. We've had the Roman elite. We've had the vulnerable woman. And now we move on to the great prophet, John. Isn't that amazing the way Luke pieces together? Who are the followers of Jesus? All sorts of examples. John sends his disciples. He's been hearing about what Jesus has done. 
And he sends his disciples and he says, are you the one? Are you the one or should we look for another? I find that amazing because John's baptized him and he's previously baptized him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he said as Jesus walked towards the river where he was baptizing him. He said, look, here's the one. Here's the one we've been waiting for. He baptizes him. There's an amazing event around his baptism. And then John gets unsteady. I love that. John is portrayed as this kind of out there, no holds barred, says it as it is. He's just fearless. But are you the one? Because in a way you don't look like the one. The contrast between John and Jesus is huge. John lives out in the wilderness. He's clothed in animal skins. He eats honey, uh, wild honey and locusts. That's his diet. Uh, and he is he's the kind of guy who'll wander up out of the desert into Jerusalem. He'll shout and bawl at the king who's being uh, unfaithful to the God of his people and then he'll go back out and people will follow him and he'll confront them with all of the sin that they have been committing. Then he baptizes them in repentance and he says, go and live good lives. Go and change this world. Make it righteous. That's what John's like. Fearless. Really in the face of unrighteousness. And then Jesus comes along. And he doesn't seem to behave like John. He drinks and eats with people who are unrighteous. And he spends time with people who John would have been in the face of saying, you are unrighteous. And Jesus just sits down with gangsters and prostitutes, which is the picture that's portrayed, that's the language that's used. He sits down with those kind of people and he holds the most remarkable conversations and some of them come to faith. It's amazing. And yet John says, are you the one? And Jesus uses that. And he says, do you know what? How will I describe this generation? You're like kids in the marketplace, he says. I'm going to read the verse because I, I think it's an amazing little verse. Verse 32. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. What's he saying? I attribute all of this to a message that I heard from Don Carson on this very text. And it was just so powerful. He said this, It's like kids playing in the marketplace and they're playing weddings. And some of them decide to play the flute and some of them sulk and say, We won't dance. We're not playing that game. So we play something really sad. We play a dirge. We play funerals. And you won't cry. He says that's just what this generation is like. John has come and he'd said, in your face, this is the dirge. 
This is the reality of your sin. And you won't play his game. Or in real terms, he says, you will not listen to him. You are like sulking kids in the marketplace. And then I come along, and it is about joy and hope and freedom and liberty in in the God who is now present with you, and you say, eat a drunkard. I bring joy. I bring the great news of the gospel, and you sulk about that as well. What is it when kids sulk about everything? What is it? It's when they only ever want their way. That's what it is, isn't it? Sometimes it's because they're so tired and you can see it in their eyes and whether you just want a quiet, they, they fight a bit against being quiet and they fight against doing something fun. They are just out of it. But the top and bottom is they want it their way. They don't want to be led. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, that's what you're like. The good news has come. And you say, I abandon it because it looks unrighteous. Well, hang on a sec. When we were talking about unrighteousness before, you didn't want to listen to that either. Your problem is not with the message. Your problem is with yourselves. And the same thing continues today. That's how we are when we rebel against Jesus. So, we come to the final question then. Who are followers of Jesus? Those who have plenty and know that they have nothing. And have faith in Jesus. Those who have nothing and know they have nothing. And have faith in Jesus. Those who are incredibly religious but know that they're pointing to something new. Like John. And he has faith in Jesus. Isn't it a remarkable picture? What does, what does it actually bring? It brings hope. That's what the centurion found. It brings life. That's what the vulnerable widow found. But there's one other little amazing set verse which I found incredible. Well, Jesus is speaking about John. He says something which, it's quite challenging really. Let me find it. Verse 28, it says this, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How does that tie in to being a follower of Jesus? As people are, here's an opportunity, we're going, to, we're going to criticize John now because Jesus is now saying we can criticize John. And he says, no, there is, there is no prophet greater than John. Don't you look back at some of those old characters in the Bible and you say, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? John the Baptist, did you ever play the game? Who would I want to be in the Bible? 
I think as a kid, I always wanted to become, I always wanted to be Samson. Maybe it's because I was about four foot nothing and weighed about three stone. Uh, And then I kind of grew up and I realized what Samson was really like, and I think that was really not a good idea. Who do you want to be like? John the Baptist. And then Jesus says this, let me tell you this. The least in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. That's you and me. How can we honestly say we are greater than John the Baptist? We're the least in the kingdom of heaven. We're we're nothing. How can we be greater than John the Baptist? I'll tell you this. This is how we are greater than John the Baptist. It's what we've just done as we've taken communion. What couldn't John the Baptist do? For those who aren't aware, John the Baptist is is beheaded in the life of Jesus during Jesus' ministry. He's killed. John as a prophet is never able to declare the truth about what Jesus is. The one who died and rose again and ascended to heaven. The Son of God, God incarnate. He was the one who sat there saying, here's the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later on saying, is it you? He's not able to truly declare it. But we've just declared it. We've just said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God because He died and he rose again, and he returned to heaven, and because his body is broken, I am healed. And because his blood is shed, I am forgiven. That is the most remarkable declaration that anybody can make. And that's how we are greater than John the Baptist. It's so humbling, isn't it? It actually means it's all about Jesus. Being able to declare who He is is our greatness. Isn't that that amazing? Being able to declare who Jesus is is our greatness. What does that say? It's His greatness that is supreme over everything. I hope as we work through Luke, we can see the way in which it engages with all of us. No matter where we are, I also pray that we might all be able to say, I am a follower of Jesus.